Hey guys, this is Georgia with Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens with Jamie and Bree. You're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens. I'm Jamie. I'm Bree, and we're two sides of the coin. Join me, George Norrie, in Indian Wells, California, May 29th to June 1st for the Contact in the Desert UFO Conference, an epic weekend of exploration into UFOs, ancient civilizations, crop circles, and so much more. Over 150 lectures, panels, workshops, and events with leading experts Paul Hellyer, Linda Moulton Howe, Nick Pope, Emery Smith, Stephen Greer, Russell Targ, Doc Wallach, Leslie Kane, and more. Get your tickets at contactinthedesert.com. It's time to make contact. Contactinthedesert.com. All right, all right, all right. New York, New York. The lights are so shiny. I thought you were going to go Alicia Keys with that. No. I'm not and then you're get, like, you. I'm not trying to get like, uh, like Wait, copyrighted. Isn't that the song? It was like New York, New York, something like that. The very beginning of Party Monster. Yeah, that's the song, isn't it? Oh, that's such a fucking good New movie. York, God, New York. Hey, that took place in New York. It did. There you go. Well, now you know what we're going to talk about this episode. If you guys can't tell, we're talking about New York. (laughs) New York. New York. All right. So New York is a small state, but with big things happening there. I mean, you got the Big Apple. You got the Statue of Liberty. You got the Towers. You got it all. You have a very densely populated city. And then I think other parts that aren't so populated. Like upstate New York. Lots going on in New York, including UFO cases. We got some aliens, some Bigfoot, some swamp monsters. Lay it on me, Brie. I wanted to start off by telling you something that you probably already came across. In 2020, they designed a new restriction permit, and it's basically a stargazing law. Mm. Because the city is so dense, obviously there's a lot of light pollution. Mm -hmm. So people are traveling to other places to see the stars better. A lot of those places are national parks. Mm -hmm. So now you are required to obtain a permit, and it's a stargazer's permit. You have to have a permit in order to be stargazing. Interesting. Yeah. It's $35 if you're a resident, but if you're not, it's $60. And the permit is only good for one year. And there are about six different parks that you are allowed to stargaze in with this permit. Okay, so normally national parks like close at sundown. So you're telling me that this permit is special to get into the parks after dark. Ooh, that's a really good question. Yeah. I don't know. Because I was like, what are you paying for if you're just going to the park? Aren't you paying to, like, be there? But it makes sense to me that you'd be paying more because they would have to have staff there at night in order to house all of these people. Well, you'll have to find out more by going to (laughs) parks.ny.gov. Perfect. What a great plug for the New York Parks Department. There you go. This this episode's been sponsored by New York Parks Department. Well, you know, it started a little bit of uproar by people thinking the sky is some place that you can stop anywhere you want and look at. But now it's more like you're required to have a permit if you're planning on doing so. But to me, it only sounds like if you're going to a national park and doing it. I can't imagine you sitting out on your balcony looking up in the sky like some police officer is going to be like, whoa, 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 sir, you can't look up. The sky police? Where's your permit? They're like, excuse me, I work with the Space Force, and you are not to be looking in that direction A little drone kind of goes around from building to building. Are you staring at the sky, sir? That is not owned by you. That's owned by Tesla. (laughs) Well, I mean, it could be. Because another article I came across, 
was um, by the New York Post and apparently in the year of 2019, there was a 52% increase in reported UFO sightings for the state of New York. Wow. So I wonder what is going on here? I haven't the slightest clue, but I have a feeling that the answer might be, um, oh shit, what's it called? Aliens. I thought you were going to say space dust. (laughs) No. In the article, they took just kind of some one person sentence out of, you know, one of the reports that I found was really interesting. And it was someone that had stopped at a stoplight and looked up and saw a a shiny silver object in the sky, transfixed in the sky. Mm -hmm. And so just think maybe your typical flying saucer. But then it spewed out a bright green orb. Like, that came out from the craft. Oh. Oh. That, I thought, was really interesting. Sounds like a little mothership dropping off some little babies. Like, pew, 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 pew. It's just interesting to think of those two crafts being interconnected, though. Because I think of a flying saucer as being very, almost like an old school craft. It's very tangible it's very nuts and bolty like someone had to manufacture this craft and then i think of an orb as being a light ship yeah more spiritual and i get what you're saying it's a very yeah but to me i've always thought of them in the same personally because the way i think about it is okay think about just here on earth we have all these different types of countries and people we all have different types of vehicles that we drive all all these different companies that make them so why would we think that all ufos look the same you know i can understand that in the sense of like a cigar shaped to a flying saucer to a flying triangle again you're talking about like a physical type of craft that's made out of some like metally type of shiny shit not something where we don't even know what kind of material if it is a material or if it's just an organic being itself well that's just like when we're talking about gas cars and electric cars you're talking about the same thing they're two different propulsion methods so who's to say that it's not just different kinds of aliens who come from different types of physics and there's stuff that's just above our head. Or maybe the flying saucer saucers are housing the green orbs because the green are, orbs are the aliens, but they can also just pop up and fly around by themselves. I mean, that's rather possible. <laughs> Our idea of what we think aliens are is so drastically different than what like the textbook little green man with like eyeballs is. I see aliens like when you watch like Men in Black and they have like all these different crazy kinds like doopity goppity ones and like three heads reptiles and and, yeah like all sorts of weird things so I don't know why we're always stuck on the same exact idea of what an alien is. I gotcha. I don't know what an alien is, but yeah, aliens, I don't know. And the options for how they are housed, I guess, is absolutely limitless. I just thought it was interesting. I agree. Also, something I thought that you would love to know, one of your favorite places that you would love to go to, your favorite without even being there. The Hayden Planetarium? Yes. So there's- Because baby daddy is there near the grass (laughs) ties. The New York City ghost doctors, they do these paranormal investigations and ghost walk tours and stuff like that. They're having these events there and it's basically a a UFO research type of tour that you can go and it's a two hour tour and it is as if they will take you through maybe a few different UFO investigations, probably offer reasoning behind it like the actual reason or you know stuff that makes more sense but then also point out the unknowns and then also go through a couple tools and equipment that is used to do ufo investigating well did you also know that they have a ufo festival there yes the pine bush ufo festival which one of our very early 
early, early listeners and friends, Blue Alien Mystic. Yes, I remember many moons ago, he invited us to go. And it just looks like a very wholesome UFO festival. They have a parade, a UFO parade. A place where you can dress up like an alien and just strut the streets. Many people there believe that Pine Bush is a hotbed for UFOs. They call it the UFO capital of the East Coast. Yes, they do. Which is interesting. I personally haven't heard of too many cases in Pine Bush. Me either. It seems like it's not like a lot of big cases. It's just a lot of personal experiences, which, you know, can go either way for me. We all love a big case that's like well-documented, but then also at the same time, what have we always said? The best evidence is your personal experience with something. So I like that a lot of these people just kind of have their own experiences and it's not tainted by the media. It's just people telling their stories. I have to agree, actually. It's not a place where, oh, we've made it on the Project Blue Book list. That to me is kind of boring. So it is kind of cool that there's just a place where the average person gets to have a UFO sighting. All right, Brie, let's get into our first story of the night of New York alien abductions. <clears throat> alien. Can you say alien in a, in a New Yorker accent? <laughs> So I believe we've tried to do this before. Yes. I believe we've tried to do this before because we tried to do it in a Boston accent, which is very similar. And we could remember we looked it up online. We looked up we looked up a Boston accent saying alien. I remember this. Are you sure we didn't do a British one? It was also British as well. Let me see. A New York, an alien, an alien, an alien. It's as best as I got. I don't do they even say alien? No, I don't think so. You seen those UFOs out there? That was not New York to me. I don't know what that was. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> hey, yo, Bobby, you see those UFOs out there? That works. That was a little more Boston to me than it was New York. Boston, New York, they're smacked up next to each other. <laughs> All right. They're about a long hot dog away. <laughs> it's very true. Grabbing a snitchel on the way to the next date. All right, guys, we're going to be talking about the 1989 Brooklyn Bridge abduction, which, side note, 1989 was the year that the most beautiful, wonderful people in the world were ever born. Taylor Swift? No, me. <laughs> Taylor Swift is trash. She was born in 1989. God, she's fucking garbage. You're I garbage. I, don't, I just don't, I don't, here's Still the thing. Still a piece of garbage. Still a piece of garbage. Her music is like fine, it's whatever. It's I just, I don't like her as a person. <gasps> How dare you? I hate, I hate the Swift, Taylor Swift gang. I'm just not, I'm not into it. It's just not my Maybe cup of tea. Maybe you should watch her documentary I on did. Netflix. I did, and it just made her me. Her Miss Americana? It just made me. You're a liar. Dislike her more. You're a liar. I watched like maybe two minutes of it. There you go, see? You're a liar. Because I was just like, ugh, you're so smug. Ugh, <laughs> not. Hold on, my foot's asleep. Ow. Why are you so judgmental? <laughs> Because I am, Sandra. I am. <laughs> you taught me well. The story reminds me of um, the Britney Spears song, Lucky. She's, she's so lucky. She's, she's a star, but she cry, cry, cries in a lonely heart thinking. If there's nothing missing in my life, then why do these tears come at night? You know, can I just say we haven't turned an episode into a musical in a while. <laughs> and of course, give it to the New York episode to do it to us. Like we're on Broadway. New York. Okay. All right. Start this over. 
So, this is the story of Linda Napolitano. That's why it reminds me of it. That's why every time I'm like, no, I thought you were going to say, this is the story of all Linda became abducted from the Brooklyn Bridge. There you go. Okay, so Linda Napolitano, which was kind of like her stage name in uh, a book that was written about her experience, she ended up being, her real name is Linda Cordell. So on November 30th, 1989, at 3 a.m., Linda was taken out of her Brooklyn apartment through her window by a beam of light with three aliens. This is the perfect number. You always see the three, like one in the center and the two on the side. Well, Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. No, there you go. The Holy Ghost. (laughs) (laughs) So Linda had contacted Bud Hopkins, who was a famous UFO researcher, the day after this had happened to be like, yo, buddy, I was abducted by aliens. Let me tell you my story. At the time, she didn't quite remember exactly what had happened to her. And it actually took her several days and a lot of hypnosis and regressions to even figure out exactly what happened to her. She remembers being in her house, she remembers falling asleep, and she remembers kind of waking up in almost a sleep paralysis-like state where she was conscious of what was going on, but she couldn't move or talk and she had no idea what was happening. And she remembers seeing these three little men and they almost floated her up and this light came through the window and mind you, the UFO is sitting right outside of her window and it scoops her up the light with the three guys and they just float off through the window. She goes into the spaceship and takes off graceful. Under all of these regressions and hypnosis, she realized that they have done a bunch of weird things to her. Mm. Things like medical experiments. One thing she remembers in particular is that some sort of large device was inserted up into her nose. Oh, God. Well, at some point after this all had happened, she had gone to the doctor and had an x-ray done of her face. And guess what was in her nasal cavity? There seems to be some sort of metal object lodged into her nasal cavity. And the first thing that goes off in her head is, oh my God, is this a like alien tracking chip? <laughs> so she tells Bud about it. And she's like, Bud, look at this x-ray. I've never had surgery. Even her mom confirmed and she's never had surgery on her nose. There would be no reason for anything to be lodged up inside of there. And she had gone to bed that night and she woke up Brie in a puddle of blood. Oh God. All over her pillow. She had this horrible nosebleed and she couldn't figure out why. And then she goes back and gets another x-ray. Guess what's gone? Ooh. The chip. But in its place is like this weird piece of cartilage that has grown. Oh, mm-hmm. Yes. So there's no technical physical evidence of like somebody pulling this chip out of her, but it's very interesting that she found it, mm-hmm. she acknowledged it, told people about it, and then it seems like the aliens came back and removed it. Oh, shit, they're catching on to us. They take it out, they probably cauterized it, which caused the cartilage... cartilage. To then, like, overgrow, try to seal the deal. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Yes. And there was a lot of other weird instances that happened here to her. Now, Bud, during this time, is gathering all this information, talking with her, going with her to these regressions and hypnosis things, and really trying to piece together this story. You know, a few witnesses here and there are coming out saying, oh, you know, I-, I saw what happened. I witnessed her coming out of the window. But the two most prominent and important witnesses here Well, at the time when they told Bud who they were, they said that they were police officers, but it later came to find out that they were some sort of secret service slash FBI slash CIA agent, some sort of three-letter government Mm. agency. Scandals. 
So these two men approach Hopkins saying that they had witnessed a UFO abduction a few years back and they really needed to talk to him about it. Ever since they've seen it, they've just, their lives have been kind of like riddled with like questions and nightmares and they, they were just freaked out about the whole thing. Seems like they were having a hard time getting on with their life after witnessing what happened. So the two men, Richard and Dan, sat Bud down and basically told them exactly the same thing that Linda had told him a few years prior. And it was interesting because as far as Bud was concerned, he had never talked to anyone really outside of the group about Linda's story. So it was interesting that these two people were coming up to him being like, hey, I saw this thing, let me tell you about it. And Bud started to connect all these dots and realized that they had witnessed Linda's abduction. At the time, they had lied to him about what they were doing. They said that they were on like a stakeout, blah, 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 blah. But it ended up what happening was is that they were driving a limo over the Brooklyn Bridge. And at the time, they were being kind of secret service bodyguards for an incredibly important individual. And his name didn't come out till many, many years later. But it was Javier Perez de Cellular. He was the Secretary General of the United Nations. Now, there's a lot of controversy involved when it comes to these two guys and whether or not they were actually part of, you know, the FBI, CIA, you know, whatever agency, or if this was all some sort of a hoax. But these two characters really don't disappear for a long time. And at one point, Linda even claims that she was abducted by both of them because they were Ooh. so distraught and so obsessed with the case that they just needed answers. Oh, she was outside of her apartment building when she was approached by a car with the two guys. She refused to get in and they forced her in the car, telling her that this was official business and it had to involved national security. And they drove around, she says, for three and a half hours where she was questioned repeatedly about what happened that night, whether she worked for the government or not, and whether aliens were real. It definitely seemed like whatever these two guys saw like blew their fucking mind. Now the guy they were driving around, the Secretary General of the United Nations, this is also where it gets a little bit fishy. It's, it's said that him and Bud had a meeting about this whole thing because Bud really wanted to get him on record saying what happened because obviously he was there too. But he would never go on official record saying anything about it. But Bud said privately that he basically agreed to everything, that yep, that's exactly what happened, yep, I was there. So we're, we're kind of torn on this evidence of whether or not to believe what Bud said, if that you know meeting even ever happened, or is this some sort of government disinformation going on? That's another side to this kind of conspiracy slash hoax kind of story. You know, is this all a hoax that's something made up, or is this an incident of the government coming in and making everything seem crazy because if you make it seem crazy, no one will believe it. That's the first thing I thought of at first. Bud released this book out in about 1992 in December about this entire scenario, including the two, you know, agents who had witnessed it. And even more witnesses came out after that point. All in all, there was about 23 witnesses who had physically watched her from her window get taken out and floated out by this giant UFO with these aliens. That's crazy. You never, ever hear about witnesses to an abduction. Never. To me, it kind of sort of makes sense that you would see that many witnesses because we're talking about New York here. New York is kind of like its own planet in a sense with how many people that are there and how tall the buildings are. You know, we make a lot of comments about how not a lot of people look up. Well, sometimes in New York, all you can do is look up. You know, you're you're up that high anyways. So to me, it would make sense that if people were gonna see some sort of an abduction or something happen, New York would be the place that so many eyes are turned more towards the sky. You know, in comparison to Kentucky, Kentucky doesn't have these crazy high buildings. They have all these, you know, swamps and forests and open land, and you're not necessarily looking up so much per se. 
So it's an interesting kind of thing. Of course, I, I wouldn't say like some rural UFO abduction was witnessed by 23 people, but I would imagine in a big city, absolutely. Which makes me think, why the city? Why would you be snatching up people in New York City? <laughs> Not laying low. Who knows? It's 1989, which is like an interesting time in New York. A lot of drugs, <laughs> a lot of murders. I don't know if anyone remembers those times. I don't, I wasn't there, but you know, it's, it's a rough area. So who knows? Maybe this Linda person was really important to them. Maybe her DNA had some weird chromosome inside of it that cured all of their weird alien cancer. We have no idea why they do the things that they do. We can only imagine. But it's an interesting story. There's definitely a lot inside of the regression and the hypnosis that people should go back and look into and figure out what you think happened. I am going to err on the side that I think that this is real. I think that she was really abducted. I think that something happened. And I think it's extraordinary that this many people came out and are agreeing to it. Have you seen Intruders? No. Basically, a part of her story is in Intruders, which I believe is the story of Bud Hopkins when he starts putting all these um, abduction stories together. The bit of the woman finding the thing in her nose and they're like, I never had any surgeries and she's going crazy. That's a pretty good movie and it's also early, early 90s. You can watch it on YouTube. All right, we'll check that out. Before we move on to the next story, Brie, you think it happened? You think it's real? Ooh. Ooh. Sometimes I think it's funny when you're like shocked when I ask you. I know. It's literally, <laughs> it's what the podcast is. <laughs> what well, I think it's more that I'm forced to answer. Mm -hmm. I don't know why like, it catches oh. me off guard. It's yeah. so stupid. God, I'm so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to middle bitch it. Surprise, surprise. Oh, my I, God, all right. I don't know, my friend. Maybe I believe the part of her being abducted, but the two guys sound like a disinformation mm -hmm. or they sound like disinformation agents to me. I'm perplexed. I think I need to learn more about it. All right, deal. We will. I'll get you the book for your uh, birthday. I think that the rest of the sightings we're going to go over today are also in the time frame of the 80s to maybe the early 90s. I'm not going to lie. Best time ever. So hit me with it. <laughs> hit me with your best shot. Fire away. <laughs> this next one is a very famous wave of UFO sightings known as the Hudson Valley UFO sightings that took place along the Hudson River and the whole valley surrounding that area. The first reported sighting was December 31st, 1982. Although to be transparent, there are some places that will say 1981. It could be because it's New Year's Eve that people get confused. Mm. Like, is it 1982? Is it 1981? But for the sake of the story, I'm just going to stick with 1982 because I found that the most consistent. Okay. So this is in Kent, New York. New York. New York. An off-duty police officer observed a group of white, red, and green lights outside of his house. And he first thought it was a plane until it came much closer. It slowly glides over its head. And the thing is massive, which is when he realized this was a UFO. And he immediately reported it and said there were about 15 of those red, white, and green lights on the craft a crap ton of lights on this giant craft. So this is a small fleet. It's one object. Oh. As it glides over, he realizes that it's in the shape of a boomerang. Oh. So it's not like a bunch of crafts in the formation. Mm -hmm. This is one big giant craft with like lots of lights. Interesting. Yes. He can see that they're connected as they go over. 
There was a second witness that night, Edwin Hansen, who was driving on Interstate 84, and he had pulled over because there were a line of other cars that had also pulled over. And when he got out and joined them, he realized it was because everyone had pulled over to watch that same type of craft, this huge boomerang, glide over the interstate. Edwin Hansen, when he had saw the craft, there was a voice in his head that told him not to be afraid. Sounds like these aliens are very telepathic. It was quite a situation for the town that night. And then about two months later, February 26, Monique O'Discoll pulled over to see the object with her daughter. So she's on the road also and sees over a frozen lake this giant boomerang craft. And she describes it the exact same way as the other witnesses did. But what was very strange about this sighting of hers, as the craft started to leave the spot, she thought, oh no, no, come back. It was something that she wanted to watch. And the second that she had those thoughts of wanting it to return, the craft came back to where it was. And it started to get closer to her. And as she realized what was happening, she freaks out and then it leaves. Well, of course she's like, oh wait, come back. And then she's like, oh shit, wait, never mind. JK, JK, please leave. So this is a very strange mind reading situation maybe a little bit of i don't say strange i say very typical what do they say to all of us when we're out in these big groups looking for ufos you put your intentions out there because the aliens can telepathically like listen to your shit so it just sounds like typical yeah call me and i shall come be scared and i shall leave yes so there's there's now two different instances where these people are reportedly seeing the same type of boomerang craft that has some sort of telepathic message or that can seem to catch their vibes of what they're feeling like they're in their mind somehow one thing that is interesting about Monique when she sees this craft is as it moves along, she's able to see the underbelly of the craft. And she describes it as being kind of like the foundation of a bridge when there's the cross beams. Mm. And so she can visually see that this object is one solid craft. So there's not many and a lot of people kind of cross-reference to that. So during the spring, March 17th, Dennis Sant is a deputy clerk for the Putnam County. He witnessed the same type of object also move very slowly over his house. He had this immediate thought to run outside and get a good look of it in his backyard. And as he runs over and he sees it in person, he gets a flood of thoughts that are 100% fear-based. He gets almost like visions, pictures in his mind. He sees the craft landing. He sees an actual alien entity landing and coming to meet him. He gets flashes of being abducted by these aliens. He was completely terrified by the event. Even after he reported it, it stuck with him for a really long time. It's something that when everyone else is kind of like, oh, they were in my head with all these peaceful thoughts or seem to be non-threatening, this man had an adverse reaction to that situation. Although no one else seemed to get glimpses of situations in their mind. So I'm not sure if these are two different type of crafts. They're many months apart, but I think that's really interesting if maybe that did happen and he thinks that he has glimpses, but it actually happened. Or maybe it's flashing back to something that has happened in his past. Or something that will happen right, in the future. Like a premonition. Mm -hmm. About a week later, March 24th, a Newcastle police officer witnessed the same type of lights while she was on duty. 
the craft started to approach her police car. And so she gets out to watch it and then it leaves. So she jumps back into her car and she tries to follow the craft until it vanishes up into the hillside. So the craft got close enough to her car where she could visually see the entire craft too. Same thing, boomerang shaped, red and white lights, sometimes with green lights and a series of lights that are all fixed on one solid boomerang craft. That very same day, about 10 miles north of where she was, on Taconic Parkway, a senior manager and engineer at IBM, Ed Burns, he also sees the very strange craft in the sky. And he pulls over in same situation as earlier on in that year. A bunch of people are pulled over again to watch this craft. Giant sightings. They are individual sightings, but it seems like when it's cruising around the interstate, everyone gets a good look at this craft and it's just calling people to pull over and all witnesses in groups together. So then the Yorktown police, the dispatch center, they become flooded with calls about this craft. Since everyone's pulling over on side of the road, you have a police officer that witnesses it herself. All the calls are saying the exact same thing a boomerang or triangle-shaped craft that's moving along the city. So a sergeant, Kevin Sorvilla, goes out to check it out and he also confirms that he witnessed the exact same V-shaped craft. So it could be that it's a boomerang, but maybe from afar, it obviously just looks like a triangle because mm -hmm. you're closer. Most of these are all police officer sightings that are the big named sightings because these are obviously credible people. Yeah. That's just a few of the sightings. There's tons of other witness accounts for people that have been seeing these crafts. Then comes the summer of 83, an air traffic controller. He's working one night, he's up at the towers. He claims that he thought he saw the exact same craft, but then as it moves closer, that he realized that they were just a bunch of planes all flying in formation. Oh. So this starts a stream of what I'm gonna call excuses of it being a hoax. So we're talking space dust. All the police officers that have reported the craft, their police station then comes out with these statements. Okay. So you have the Yorktown police and the Putnam police come out and make statements that what everyone had been observing were not UFOs or anything like that, nothing otherworldly. They were misidentified and that they were a squadron of ultralight aircrafts flying in a tight formation. Interesting. Most ultralight planes, your body is outside of a craft, kind of like in a little shell casing. It's extremely light. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like your body is outside of the craft. You're yes. It looks like you're basically like like pedaling to keep the thing in the air. They're so light, which is why it's called a micro light plane or an ultra light plane. It's not something that's heavy that, you know, can kind of stay mm -hmm. fixed. Mm -hmm. They bob in the wind. You can watch videos of these types of planes. They bob in the wind. Mm. So I find it very hard to believe that there could be a group of these ultra light planes that can all stay so tight together in a V formation, completely stable and perfectly glide over the city. Not to mention that they make noise and all of the accounts for all of these sightings was that it's silent. That's the first thing people notice when it's not an airplane because it's dead silent. So you would hear some type of noise. And a lot of the reports for these ultra light planes is that it sounds like a lawnmower. So you could be able to tell the difference. And if they were unpowered ultralight planes, 
then that could make sense for it being silent. Yeah. But if that's the case, then you're talking hang gliders, paragliders. Obviously, you can't fly in any formation. Yeah. You're at the mercy of the wind. And you're going down and the you're entire going, time. Everyone's going to be all over the fucking place. Mm-hmm. There's no way that they can even stay in a formation. So after this happened, a group of private pilots start flying around and they're trying to mimic the same situation. So this causes a bit of confusion for people because you have people that have seen the original sighting Mm -hmm. and then you have like groups of airplanes and groups of helicopters all flying around, all kind of trying to mimic this V formation. I think to show people like, ha, obviously it's us or, you know, whatever the case. Almost like they're trying to mimic the sighting. To try to kind of disprove it. Like, hey, look, it it was just us, guys. Like, see, look, we do it all the time now. Mm-hmm. So I looked this up online to learn a little bit more about the ultralight planes and the microlight planes. And it is an FAA requirement that you can only fly these types of aircraft during daylight hours. It's absolutely forbidden to do these night flights because they are so light, because you don't have a lot of control over these. So again, I find it really hard to think that a group of these people were able to be out in the sky flying these formations. Not only that, but these incredibly expensive, hard to get crafts. And there's just, you know, 80 of them or something hanging out at once. Not to mention all the people that have reported the sighting, they all said, yeah, I've seen both of these now. I've seen the original and I've seen these recreations recreations and they're not even comparable next year march 25th 1984 a second wave of these sightings began and this time the reported crafts were not these boomerang shapes they were quite different the crafts that were being reported were in the shape of an x shapes of crosses and also circular shaped crafts which actually is on film you can watch a lot of these recorded sightings online now so you have this giant gap of the first wave and in the second wave and at least with the second wave there's more proof because you have all of the video footage but all of these sightings really caught the attention of none other than j allen hynek and philip imbrogno they kind of pair up together and they open two hotlines basically a ufo hotline wait like our hotline just like our hotline what's that number 408-320-8481. During these years of all of these sightings, they estimated more than 5,000 reports that they got through these two different UFO hotlines that they had. They dove deep into investigations. They wrote a book about it. The book was released after J. Allen Hynek died, unfortunately, but many people can go out and read about it now. What's interesting is there have also been other researchers that suggest that there have been documented sightings dating back to the early 1900s. Oh, I would imagine. I mean, that's one of the most highly or the longest populated areas in the world. When you read more about the sighting, it's kind of like it trickles down into 89, 90. And that's kind of where the giant waves end. But here and there, you do get a small surge of sightings. So there were even some sightings that reported in 2018 and 2019. So for whatever reason, maybe because this is along a body of water. Like the Nile. There are... 
waves of giant UFO sightings in that area. All right, Brie, let's get into our speaker profile of the week. As you guys know, we're real obsessed with contact in the desert. Right now, we're gonna talk about somebody who's going to contact in the desert who I'm really excited to see and listen to, and we're gonna hear a little bit of his story. So Bree, why don't you tell me a little bit about Whitley Strieber? Whitley Strieber is very famous for one of his abduction encounters. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's written well over 20 novels. Some of them have been made into movies. Communion? Communion. Which, side note, if you guys didn't know, we did go on a podcast called Not For Everyone Podcast where we talked about the movie Communion, but not really, so you should go check out that episode. (laughs) That was really fun. A little bit into Whitley Strieber's abduction. This took place upstate New York, actually in Kingston, New York, which borders the Hudson River. Body of water. (laughs) The Hudson River is in this area we were just talking about, right? These giant waves of the sightings that were called the Hudson Valley sightings or the Hudson River Valley sightings. And the night of this first occurrence is December 26, 1985. So we're also in the same time frame of these Hudson Valley UFO sightings. I think they have to be related. Anyways, so he's living with his wife and his son in a cabin upstate New York. It's fairly remote. At the time, the cabin wasn't even on the grid. So it's nice and quiet out there. Day after Christmas, so holiday vibes. Everyone's happy. But for some reason, when night comes around, Whitley is unreasonably paranoid. He gets this brand new security alarm installed, but he still feels uneasy at night. And he somehow obtained this habit every night of going around the house and checking all the windows and doors, making sure they were shut and locked. Sometimes he would do this multiple times. Sounds like a little bit of OCD. But also paranoid. His fear is that there were intruders coming in in the middle of the night. It made no sense to him because, you know, he has this brand new security system and they're in the middle of nowhere and it's just him and his family. Nothing ever happens. But for some reason, when nighttime comes, he's paranoid about people coming into his house. On this night in particular, in the middle of night, he's awakened by what he describes as a whooshing sound. He sits up looks over at the panel of the security alarm everything's still cool he's like all right there's no intruders we're cool right i'll start to go back to bed and as he lays back down he hears some one of the doors of his double doors in his bedroom is starting to open so he shoots up sitting in bed this time really fucking awake and he sees the outline of a creature that he estimates to be about three and a half feet tall. And this creature comes rushing at his bedside and he blacks out. Next thing he knows, he wakes up. It's morning, not remembering anything other than a barn owl staring at him through his window that night. The only thing he can't shake is how uneasy he's feeling. He feels like something weird happened. Something is wrong, but he doesn't know why. So he's looking outside of his window. There's no tracks in the snow that there was an owl sitting out there last night. It doesn't seem to make any sense, but he kind of ignores it. But this goes on for a while. It's kind of like this overbearing thing in the back of his head that something happened. Something really strange and really wrong happened to him. 
So he decides to partake in a regression session, hypnosis regression. And that's when he gets a series of flashes and basically memory recall of some of the events that took place that night. He remembers being lifted up by his bed, a lot like Linda. Same kind of thing. Same laying kind of vibes. In, laying in bed and feeling like you were just kind of levitating off of the ground and you go outside and there's this UFO waiting for you in your, your backyard, your front yard. Same kind of situation. He remembers being exalted up into this UFO and just seeing like the trees kind of flashing by him really quickly. And he remembers that there were a series of medical examinations done on him. They took samples. They inserted a needle-like object into his brain which then he starts to scream in terror. And one of the beings asks him, what can we do to make you stop screaming? Hmm. And he replies, you can let me smell you. Wait. <laughs> Wait. Yes. This man has a needle in his brain and a bunch of weird aliens surrounding him. And they're like, how can I help you, buddy? Mm-hmm. And he goes, can I smell you? Yes. And it sounds very strange. It's and so strange. In the book, he's working this out and he's saying, I know a lot of my reactions this night is not the way that you would assume that you would react, but this is how he reacted. And he describes their scent as being like cardboard, a bit of organic sourness, and cinnamon. And realizes now, and this actually makes perfect sense to me, when you get a smell, it's very grounding in a sense. It triggers memories. Memories. That's one thing that makes things feel very real to you because you know the smell. It puts you back in that situation. So smart on his point, actually. Honestly, to me, what it sounds like is it would be what a homeless vegan man outside of Trader <laughs> Joe's would smell like. More like patchouli. Same and thing. <laughs> same thing. <laughs> cardboard is a strange smell to me. I feel like I need to smell a piece of cardboard right now to envision. I smell like like wet cardboard is gross. I don't I can't really even think of what that is. I don't really think I smell like dry cardboard. I get the cinnamon and I get the sour. The sour makes sense to me because it's like the, the, that pheromone. Like you ever walk into somebody's house who, you, who you've never been in before and it smells like not bad, but like not like it just smells weird. But it's like that's just their body, like what they smell mm. like. So their that's home gross. smells like that. Well, it's true. That happens when you go to people's houses. Watch, leave your house for a while, and then when you walk back in, tell me what it actually smells like. Because your body will forget. Yeah. I think I can actually. You know what I'm saying? No, I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. And you know they make those like perfumes some places now that's like abduction perfume. I wonder if it smells like that. We should look out for that when we're at contact. Well, you know Maybe what? Even at UFO con. You know what? Ryan from Somewhere Skies Pod. Somebody sent him that perfume. And he has it, and he smelt it. So we should ask him what it smells like. Let's see, maybe cross-reference cross that. Side note: Do you remember the weird guy who put all those weird the oils anointing on us? oils that smelled so good? God, I hope he's there. I don't know. I I will pay him so much money name. for that stuff. I loved it, we'll and I felt for it. I felt so weird after using it. We were both tripping balls. I remember. You were like, my head's tingling. Everyone said that their head was tingling, even Josh. I'm like, it's just your your pores being clogged by this oil. To be fair, <laughs> to be fair, we were a few sheets to the wind at that point. Ay, ay, ay. That was on like my fourth glass of wine, so everything felt great. That is a very strange thing that happened to him, but the worst is yet to come. The worst of it all is that he was anally probed. Ooh. Or ooh, depending on what you think. 
I'm gonna read the sentence from his book so you can really feel the details. I thought about just explaining it to you, but <laughs> yeah. It's just better off if we, if I just read this part, because I don't want to go through the entire book. It's a great read, but I just need to, for you to envision this and put yourself in there. Smell the cardboard, the sourness and the cinnamon. You're in that craft right now. Bent over, I'm guessing. Listen to these words. There were clothes strewn about and two of the stocky ones drew my legs apart. The next thing I knew I was being shown an enormous and extremely ugly object gray and scaly, with a sort of network of wires on the end. It was at least a foot long, narrow, and triangular in structure. They inserted this thing in my rectum. It seemed to swarm into me as if it had a life of its own. Apparently, its purpose was to take samples, possibly of fecal matter, but at the time I had the impression that I was being raped and for the first time, I felt anger. I know. I tried to look online for someone that has like replicated up it? this impossible to find. Mm. You can watch the movie Communion, and they kind of show this object, but I need better visuals of something that is narrow but also triangular in shape. I can see that. I have it like I have it pictured in my head personally of what I think it looks is like. It like. Yes. An obelisk. Yes. Like think of, you know, those like those those like crystals that come in those big towers like that, but like with a point on it. So it has three Maybe sides. Not so wide more. And it has Ooh. three sides. And then, okay, so think of like a cross. This is going to sound crazy. Think of a cross between like a, a three-sided crystal like that, like the wands, you know what I'm talking about, and like a dildo. Because it could still be narrow, but three-sided. Crazy. It's really horrible. I've read this to a few people and... It's actually funny. I think the first time I read it, I read it out loud to Josh, and he was like, what the fuck are you reading? And I'm like, it's an abduction story. This happens to people. And you can say that people make these things up, but why in the world would you have that much detail or even want to say that you are rectally probed because it becomes the pit of a joke? Yeah, I was going to say, it You are seems, the ass end of a joke. It seems so hum humiliating to tell people that you were, like, anally raped, so why would you purposely make up a story to tell people that? It's a very intense... They're very intense details when you read his book. He's really good at putting words together in a way where you feel like you're there. You can sense the complexity in his mind just trying to figure out what is going on here. He recounts four different beings that he encountered just that night alone. There were robot-like ones, you know, like droned types of figures. Uh, a larger group of stocky ones that were overalls that were either a dark gray or blue skinned with pug noses so squishy smashed in noses five foot tall more slender ones that were sort of delicate with big black slanted eyes and smaller ones that he refers to as huddled figures and they had little button like noses the cover of his book the og cover so not the newer editions but the older ones had the face of your typical gray alien although the color of the skin is not gray it is this kind of palish yellowy color 
it spiked a lot of memories for people. It really was a wave of people that then were freaking out about being abducted by aliens. One, because the cover was so almost petrifying. It was like it stabs your heart when you looked at it for the first time. Like the eyes could see straight through you. And I think that happened for people that have possibly encountered beings like this in their own personal lives. I've said this on the podcast probably years ago now, I somehow mentioned this, uh, the cover of the book before, and I was saying how it scared the crap out of me for the longest time. For the longest time, just seeing it come across would just freaked me out. And now I look at it, I'm not scared of anything anymore. But one thing that is really interesting is that the face of this book, he describes it as being a female. And it's the same female that asks him, what can we do to make you stop screaming? And he says, you know, you can let me smell you. This being has a really big impact on him. He calls her like a mastery of all things and kind of this like transcended one. It's interesting to look at something like that where it just looks like a typical gray. You don't really see any type of gender with those, but he picked up a really strong feminine energy. Whitley's written so many books after that, even just following up to his situation, his encounters. At that cabin, people used to go down there. They could write in like their stories and they would pick people to come up to the cabin, almost like a retreat. And people would have these experiences there even when they came to visit. Further along in his regressions, he was able to retrieve memories of an encounter that happened in October at that cabin where there was actually two other people staying at his cabin there and his son had an encounter they had an encounter and he realized that is exactly why he was so paranoid between that time frame of October November to December of intruders coming in at night and getting that security alarm system installed and kind of going over the house over and over again there were these instincts that something was coming for him and it's interesting to think that there actually was a purpose for it he wasn't just being crazy there was these real memories that were hidden deep within him He doesn't own the cabin anymore. He sold it, but he had a second cabin and things would happen there too. So it's interesting to think if it really was just that cabin or maybe there's something about him because of his experiences and because he's been around other people that have that just calls them in. People have been able to have other experiences with him. Well, I definitely think that's something that we can ask him about when we get there. So if you guys have any questions for Whitley, email them to us, DM them, send them away because we're going to start to compile all of these questions that we're going to be asking a lot of these speakers who are there. This might be too much and he might roll his eyes like, come on, I've moved way past this, but I wonder if I could ask him to sketch the device. Hmm. You're just stuck on it and you need to know. I need to know. I need the visuals. That's fine. All right, Brie, that does it for this episode, but let's, let's uh, you know, take care of business here. And the first thing we're going to do is jump into our shout outs. Brandy. Destiny. Vanessa. Danielson. Dylan. Anthony. J Plus. Matt. Bobby. Rod. Simon. Spacey D. AP. Jan. Reese. Melissa. And Shay. Welcome to our two newest members, Donna and Jessica from Moonplay Cosmetics. Woo, welcome to the club, guys. Thank you so much for your support. Tomorrow, well, for our listeners, this will be days later, Project Blue Book this season, they're releasing an episode tomorrow on the freaking Kentucky green monster things that we just talked about. Oh, of course. On topic. (laughs) 
I just wanted to let you know. Also, today is the day that we are giving away one of our tickets for Contact in the Desert. So tune into our Instagram. We will be doing a live where we will be picking the winner. All right, Brie, I have a conscious quote to dedicate to you today for Valentine's Day, okay? Splendid. All right. Love is the greatest force in the universe. It is the heartbeat of the moral cosmos. He who loves is a participant in the being of God. That's beautiful. Martin Luther King. Praise. So that was my Valentine to you because my love for you makes me happy. She's rolling her eyes at me. (laughs) And happy Valentine's Day. Loving others definitely helps. Thank you guys so much. Happy Valentine's Day. We love you all. We love you all. Uh, Fuck you, Mountain View, California. And Bobby, on this Valentine's Day, I'm not going to tell you to go fuck yourself. I'm going to tell you to have a beautiful day with your wife. Go love yourself. Hey. Hey.